Welcome to The Vine, a plant media project podcast with your hosts, Elizabeth Sheldon and Gina Vensel. The Vine is an insightful look into the world of plant medicine, exploring the changing landscape around cannabis and psychedelics and ending the stigma through educational discussions. The Vine podcast does not offer medical advice nor condone any use of illegal substances. Consult your physician or therapist before making changes to your wellness plan and before trying alternative healing medicines. Today, we welcome Dr. Matthew Mintz, a board-certified internist MD, FACP, practicing in Bethesda, Maryland, and providing personal care throughout the DMV. Named one of Washingtonian Magazine's top docs since 2012, Dr. Mintz received his medical degree from George Washington University School of Medicine in Washington, D.C. After 20 years practicing medicine and teaching as a full-time faculty member at George Washington University, Dr. Mintz opened his own practice in Bethesda. In addition to his internal medicine practice, he offers medical cannabis and ketamine-assisted therapy. Welcome, Dr. Mintz. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to see you guys again. It's great to have great to you and you. see you. Yes. So welcome, welcome. Uh, I just want to tell listeners that we've known each other for several years now, and we met through our respective cannabis jobs. Um, and I often send my friends to see Dr. Mentz because he is a medical doctor, and a lot of people are comfortable or more comfortable with that when they're getting their medical cannabis card. Today, we want to talk to you about your newest treatment, your ketamine therapy, and I wonder if you could first tell us how a traditionally trained doctor like yourself from one of our nation's most respected medical institutions got involved with cannabis and now ketamine. Yeah, it's, it, it's, a, it's interesting because this was not something that was planned. I would say, mm -hmm. well, you know, I've always been open to alternative medicine uh, and uh my GW, which I still have a faculty appointment at, has their own center for integrative medicine. So I've always been interested and open to it, but would have never considered myself sort of a practitioner. Um, and but essentially the cannabis story is that the quick version is that after a 20 year uh, career at George Washington University in D.C., decided to open up shop in Bethesda, Maryland, uh, for a variety of reasons, commute being one of them. As you can imagine, starting a new practice takes time to get going. And so things were relatively slow in those first few months. And around that time, uh, a medical dispensary opened in my medical building. And so I was very curious um, about what that was. I met with the owners uh, even before they opened and decided, you know, given that I wasn't that busy, what would be the harm of certifying patients for medical cannabis? And I'll be honest, I was a little bit skeptical. I was a little bit worried that people would be coming to me for like a legal excuse to, to use pot. But I very quickly found out that that was not the case. That, you know, at least in our area, in the DMV, just uh, you know, DC, Maryland, Virginia, if people want to get pot, they can just go to DC because it's recreationally legal. So what I found is that the patients that were coming to see me, a doctor for medical cannabis, were really sick. Like they were coming to me for severe chronic pain, addicted to opioids, desperate to get off, you know, horrible insomnia where nothing had worked, severe anxiety. I saw one of the first patients I saw had metastatic cancer. And so, you know, as a physician, that's what we like to do is we like to make people better. And when I, you know, after treating the first few patients and seeing some of the results, I'm like, there's something to it. You know, this, this is, this is, this is not just an interesting thing to do or an alternative thing. This is actually real medicine that can help a lot of people and change people's lives. And so I decided that, you know, if I'm going to do this as a physician, then I need to do this the right way. They didn't teach us about cannabis in medical school, you know, so I had to go out and 
take courses and do my own research and learn about this. And it's very hard because of the legal status of, of cannabis. You know, the research that you know we clinicians rely on, you know, isn't exactly there. And the sort of the robust way it is for, let's say, pharmaceuticals. So it took some time, effort and energy to sort of get up to speed. Um, but it's been wonderful. It's been great. Um, I enjoy treating patients, patients, you know, now that I've been doing this for several years, you know, I've had patients come back for their, you know, recertification several, you know, I've seen some patients I've seen for now four years. And it's just amazing to see what a difference in, the, in their lives it's made. So I've been very interested in doing that. And so, you know, I think the ketamine is sort of an interesting fit. I mean, you know, I know you guys are focused on plant-based medicine. Cannabis is not actually a plant, but I think the concept of uh, sort of alternative therapies, you know, to what we traditionally use, especially in the arena of mental health. And again, I'm not anti, let me be very clear. I'm not anti-pharma. I prescribe medications all the time. And in many cases they work. If, you know, if you really want to lower cholesterol, cannabis or ketamine or mushrooms is not going to do the trick and not that diet and diet and exercise is absolutely critical. But there are some people who have, you know, genetic things that, you know, they could be, you know, triathletes and, and be totally vegan and still have very high cholesterol and need medications. So there is there's a huge role for, for, in my opinion, as a traditional doctor for medications. But it's not the only answer. And especially in the area of mental health, you know, anxiety, depression, you name it. You know, for some people, the medications work very well and change their lives. But for many patients, they don't. They don't work well at all. And there's a lot of side effects. And so I certainly saw that with cannabis. Um, but depression in particular, you know, I, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but something along the lines of only about, a, you know, only about a third of patients will respond to their first antidepressant medicine. So that means two thirds of the patients don't respond with severe depression. And then, you know, about a third of those or half of those that don't respond won't respond to a second. And that's defined as treatment resistant depression. And so it's a big need. And so how I got involved in ketamine is a very sort of backwards story where when I, again, when I was first starting out in my, in my practice, I'd practice in DC for 20 years, knew all the doctors downtown, but despite living in Maryland for almost my entire life, didn't know a lot of the doctors of the community. So in those early days, I spent a lot of time trying to get to know the different, you know, businesses and doctors and other, trying to get my, my name out, if you will, to the, to the community. And I met with a psychiatrist who was doing uh, IV ketamine. Um, and, um, you know, he was telling me, and again, I don't remember exactly. Um, I've only been in the space for a couple of years. I don't know exactly when these IV ketamine clinics popped up, but there's definitely been some data on the use of IV ketamine on chronic pain, but primarily in treatment-resistant depression. And so all these IV ketamine clinics, you know, started popping up. Now, the ketamine's been around for a long time. Ketamine is completely generic. It's been around for a very long time. It's primarily used as an anesthetic, primarily in the pediatric population. So if your kid's having surgery, chances are, you know, one of the anesthesia agents that they're going to get is ketamine. So it's been around for a while. It's generic. It's safe. Um, but it is not FDA approved for treatment resistant depression, which, you know, it's for any kind of depression. It's only approved for anesthesia. And so because of that, insurance does not reimburse for ketamine treatment. And so these IV ketamine clinics have popped up over the years where patients are getting IV infusions of ketamine. And the providers are charging them, you know, a cash price of like $600, $700 a dose, which is not affordable for most people. And so one of my patients, um, uh, one of my regular patients was clearly had treatment, treatment resistant depression for many years. And he told me he had just given up. 
that he'd seen many psychiatrists, tried many medications, nothing had worked. And I had only recently met with this, this doctor who was doing these ketamine treatments. And I'm like, well, have you heard about this? He's like, oh, yeah, heard about that. I just can't afford it. Now, when I met with this doctor, he not only did he do IV ketamine treatments, but he was also doing a little bit of research. And he mentioned that there was this nose spray coming out, you know, that he was doing some trials with. And that sounded very promising. And so I mentioned to the patient, oh, you know, there's this nose spray coming out. Maybe when that's approved, you know, we could try that. Um, and then a year or so later, he came back to me. He's like, hey, doc, what's what's going on with that uh, nasal ketamine? And I'm like, I don't know. Let me look it up. So I Googled it. And lo and behold, Spravato was available. Spravato is S-ketamine. So it's a, it's, a, uh, it's a version of ketamine. So ketamine actually has sort of two halves to it. There's the S-ketamine and the R-ketamine. So this is basically a, uh, basically a modified version of, of ketamine that comes in a nose spray. Not an IV, but a nose spray. So it's much easier to administer. More importantly, though, it is approved by the FDA. And because it's approved by the FDA, many insurances will cover it. And so, so again, I googled. I'm like, all right, let's try that. So, um, uh, so I, uh, I, I said, now because it's interesting. Obviously, ketamine can also be used as you know as a recreational drug. Um, it's a controlled substance, and this is a new drug. It's not something. It's not something you can go. It's an anesthetic. You know, you can't just go to a pharmacy and get ketamine. You know, it's not something that's really safe to use at home by yourself, you know, at least in a, in a medical way. And so it has to be administered. And so so there were so when I went to the website, there was a couple things that I had to fill out in order to be approved for use of this product. And so the very next day I got like several phone calls. Hey, I hear Dr. Mintz is doing uh, Spravato. I'm interested in that. And so it turns out when I signed up to get the, the Spravato for my patient, uh, the company automatically put me as a treatment center on their website. Oh. And so it, it, this was not something that I was you know, thinking about doing, but looking into it more, there was there, I, there seemed to be a, very, a need for this, at least in our area. You know, you, you think the psychiatrists would be the ones that do this, at least in our area. Many of our psychiatrists, you know, they don't take insurance. They work by themselves. Sometimes they don't even have a staff person. And to administer this medication, you need an extra staff person, an extra room. You know, and a lot of the psychiatrists in our area aren't set up to do that. So I thought, okay, well, might this might be a good opportunity. And so I started doing Spravato treatments in my office. Um, you know, these are not for the mo for the most part, these patients are not part of my regular practice. It's basically the way I see it is I see it as a service to psychiatrists because I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm an internal medicine doctor as a service to the psychiatrist who might want to offer this treatment but can't do it in their office. And it's been incredible. It's you know. The, the research on Spravato specifically is very limited. Essentially, the company did just enough to get the drug approved. But the, the studies don't really reflect sort of the real world experience that I see, which is that most patients respond and they respond pretty dramatically and they usually respond within the first couple treatments. So it's been really fa it's been phenomenal, similar to the cannabis, to see you know, patients who had tried everything before nothing works and now finally something works and it changes their lives. So that's been great. And so where the ketamine comes in is that while it is FDA approved and most insurances will therefore cover it, uh, there are some insurances that don't, uh, Kaiser being one of them. And then while it's covered by Medicare, because Medicare is so weird, uh, it ends up being Medicare will only cover about half of it. So at $600, $700 a dose, the patient's still on the hook for $300 a treatment. 
or a dose of medicine, which again to many people is not very affordable. So I started looking into alternative ways of, of uh, or seeing what we could do to try to find a solution, you know, that's affordable for people who don't have insurance that covers it. And it turns out there are ways to get ketamine in a nasal spray. And so I, I've worked with a, a pharmacy that I know very well and trust, and I now have nasal ketamine. So it's not the same thing as Spravato. It's actual ketamine, but instead of an IV, it's in a nose spray like Spravato. And there are no head-to-head -head studies, so I can't tell you which one is better or which one is worse. Uh, there are some theoretic advantages and disadvantages to both of them. Um, but for patients who were interested in ketamine for treatment-resistant depression, or treatment-resistant depression who were interested in this kind of therapy, but their insurance doesn't cover it, it's a, it's a really good alternative. And cost-wise, at least the way I administer the practice, there's basically no difference in cost. The out-of-pocket cost for paying for the medicine, for paying for nasal ketamine without insurance is about the same for how much the patient ends up paying for the Spravato with So what is that? What is that cost? So for, okay, so for a commercial, so for the medic, so there's basically two charges. There's the charge for the treatment itself, like being in my office for two hours, being supervised, being monitored, all that. And then there's the cost of the medication. So there's two separate costs. Both, both can be covered by insurance uh, for, um, for the treatment for either ketamine or Spravato. I don't accept insurance, but I'll give invoices to patients that can submit insurance for reimbursement. And most patients will get mo almost all of the money back. The, the, re the reimbursement rate is pretty good, um, again, if, if the insurance covers it. Uh, the medication, if it's, if it's a commercial insurance, Care First, Aetna, you name it, other than Kaiser, other than Medicare or Medicaid, um, the way it works is, is once we get it approved, and there's a lot of hoops to go through, but that's what I do, um, we get, get it approved. Basically, the, the drug company gives a coupon to the patient, which which basically, so in other words, if the medicines is approved, all they have to do is pay for the copay. Because of it, it's an expensive drug, that copay can be high. So the drug company throws in a coupon that knocks that copay down to $10. Oh my. $10 a dose for Spravato if it's covered by insurance. For nasal ketamine, it, it, the, the price is a little bit more flexible because it's, it's based on how many nose sprays we end up giving you. But the average price is going to be six to seven dollars without insurance for the nasal ketamine. So wow. it's pretty much the same. So I'm able to basically give either one to patients regardless of their insurance status. The other benefit of ketamine is that I can only use Spravato for treatment resistant depression because that's the only indication that's approved under. Even if you have insurance, you know, the, uh, the, 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 um, the insurance company is not going to pay for it if it's not indicated, just like IV ketamine. Where, whereas ketamine not only can help for depression, there's some benefit for chronic pain. And again, similar to going back to the cannabis, you know, I would say that of the cannabis patients I see, the top three things that I see for cannabis, chronic pain, anxiety, and insomnia. And mm -hmm. so not as much depression, but the pain thing, there's a definite sort of crossover there. And so, you know, the research on pain is a little bit more limited, but you know, now there's a way to give ketamine without an IV. And so that can decrease cost to the patient. And again, you know, it's, it's much more affordable than getting the IV ketamine treatments at these, you know, treatment centers that, you know, don't take insurance at all. Again, I don't take insurance either, but I give patients invoices that they can be reimbursed. So I've started to do ketamine now for chronic pain. And again, it's very early. I've just started to do this, but I've seen some pretty good results. And so the, to be clear, everyone's here in nasal spray. This is not something that they get a script for and they get to just go home and try it at their leisure. No, 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 no. This is still 
being administered at your office in a situation where there's, you know, you're being supervised and then you're able to keep track. So when you're saying like, you're able to then go through with that patient and say, okay, maybe the first treatment, you know, there was some success and then you can kind of base on that. Like, how do you base how many treatments someone needs to start feeling relief? Or do you have patients that really start feeling relief after the first session? Good. That's a good question. I'm going to limit the answer to depression only because I've only treated a few patients for pain. And I don't have that experience. Whereas with depression, we treat dozens of patients. So I can give you that answer specifically for depression. What's great about both Spravato and ketamine is that the results are not only profound, but they're pretty quick. So the dosing regimen for, for depression is it's twice a week for four weeks, then weekly thereafter. Uh, in the Spravato data, after about three months, some patients have been successful and can go to every other week. So one of the downsides of this treatment is that it's not like, you know, you take it for a couple of weeks and you're cured and you're done. That you, you basically, it's sort of you're committing yourself to, to regular medicine. So, but the good news is, is that the response rate is very quick. Usually patients will respond in the first or second dose. If I don't see a response, I'll increase the dose. And if I don't get response after a dose or two, it's not going to work. So it, while it's, while if it works, it's a long-term commitment, it, it's not, it's the opposite. So typically antidepressants, the pills that we were talking about, usually doctors and myself included, when I've prescribed these, you start at a low dose, you wait a few weeks, you see what happens. If nothing happens, you increase the dose. And then after a few weeks, nothing happens. Then you're like, okay, this medicine doesn't work. So it takes like three months <laughs> to determine that the medicine's not working or it takes at least a couple weeks for the medicine to really kick in. Any antidepressant, you're not going to really start seeing benefit after a few weeks. Whereas this, you can see almost immediately after the first dose or two. So, and, and, the, and the response is relatively dramatic. It's, a, it's not a, mm, I think it's working. I mean, you'll know pretty much right away after the first dose or two, certainly by the third dose. So it's not, you know, it's not one of these things that you're stuck doing it um, for months and months at, a, at an expense. You'll know pretty quickly. And at least in the patients that I've seen, the response rate is pretty high. 80 to 90% of the patients that we treated have all responded. So it's a good response rate. So it's one of those things that I think if you've got treatment-resistant depression, if you've been on a medication or two and, or more than two medications and nothing's worked and you're still very depressed, I think it's worth a shot, at least initially, and then you can figure out how whether you want to do it long-term or not. Can you imagine a better you? Empathic Health is a global community providing support so you can find more fun, freedom, and connection in your life. Empathic Health is my integration solution for incorporating my healing work into my daily routine. Empathic Health has given me a space to use my voice to express my thoughts and be myself in a safe place. I'm excited to get to the type of work that gives my life more clarity and joy. Helping others has done nothing but help me in return. Know your medicine, know yourself. Join Elizabeth, myself, and the rest of the community today at empathic.health. What does it feel like to take ketamine? All right, so I've never taken it, so I can't say from personal Well, what do you think? What are your opinions? But I'll I'll tell you, basically, so we don't 100% know how ketamine works for depression. We don't know how a lot of the treatments work for, you know, treatment-resistant depression. So, um... You know, there's a lot of theories, but the mechanism isn't really clear. The way I like to think about it is it sort of resets the brain's receptors. It's sort of a, a refresh, if you will, a restart. Uh, and somehow 
you know, taking uh, the medicine sort of changes everything and, and everything sort of starts from sort of starts fresh. That's the way I like to conceptualize some of these tre these treatments. Like so, for example, one treatment or one of the earliest treatments for which is still being used today for treatment resistant depression is ECT or electroconvulsion therapy. Right. Oh. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's, it, it's it's as it's as barbaric as it sounds. Barbaric. Basically, you you basically put electrodes on someone's brain and shock their brain just the same way if someone's having a cardiac arrest and you put the paddles on you go clear you know it's the same it's the same concept except to someone's brain they and it's not very comfortable so they have to anesthetize the patient um and again no one really knows how it works someone i don't know decades ago hooked up a car battery to someone's head i don't know how they <laughs> it, but, um, but, it, but here's the thing it works it actually mm. is quite successful and again, we don't know how it works, but there's something about a sort of shocking the brain, resetting the brain. And I think that's what ketamine and some of these other treatments do. Um, what ketamine feels like, it, the main thing, it, it makes people relaxed, it makes people sleepy, but the most, the property that's different is that it, it causes dissociation. So what does that mean? It basically, the body does not sort of disconnects from space and time. So you feel sort of floaty or you're not sort of aware of where you are or what time it is or not necessarily who you are, but there's this disconnected feeling. Now, it's not a bad feeling. So, I mean, it's not, I mean, it's listed for spravato. It's listed as a side effect. But in fact, A, this is how it works. And B, it's not necessarily an uncomfortable or unpleasant feeling. No patient has ever told me that they had, it was like a bad trip or anything like that. As long as you warn them that they may feel floaty or weird or something like that, but it's not unpleasant. And again, most of the patients just sort of sleep. Um, the, the reason why you have to monitor the patient is a few things. Number one, if you're, you know, if you're not aware of space and time, that can be quite dangerous. You don't want someone, you know, driving or, you know, doing even normal day tasks because they could hurt themselves or others. So we observe them for at least two hours, which is around the time that the medication uh, wears off. We still uh, have, it's just like any sort of procedure like a colonoscopy or something like that. We don't let the patient drive home. Someone has to pick them up. They're not supposed to drive or make important financial decisions or important decisions for the rest of the day. By, by the next morning, they can go back to business as usual just because they haven't. It's a, Again, it's an anesthetic. They haven't it's just like having surgery or something like that. Um, the main side effect really is nausea besides sleepiness, which, again, it's not a really big deal. Well, again, most of my patients, they basically sleep in my office for two hours. The main side effects is nausea, or the most common one is nausea. So some people will get that. Again, it's usually mild. After a few treatments, people sort of accommodate to that. So it's not very big. And then the other thing is that there is sort of one factor is that it can elevate blood pressure. And so mm -hmm. we have to be very careful with that. So part of the process for both spravato and ketamine is I do a medical evaluation to see if patients are at risk because you don't want someone who, let's say, has, you know, heart disease that's not treated and you auto, you suddenly give them, raise their blood pressure and they have a heart attack or stroke. So, mm. so it can be done safely, you know, but we have to do it the right way. We have to screen and make sure there are not risk. And if we're not sure, you know, I've sent patients for evaluations, you know, to check out, you know, that they're not having a heart, they're not at risk for heart attack or stroke if I wasn't sure based on age or other factors. And the blood pressure can spike, but it almost always comes down. So what we do is we monitor the blood pressure at frequent intervals just to make sure that when it goes up, it doesn't go up too high and that it's coming down. And you know, certainly we can take emergency precautions if, if that doesn't happen the way it's supposed to. Thus far, we haven't, not going to worry about marking on wood, haven't had any emergencies or anything like that. So it is safe, but it's, you know, it's not something that I think it would be safe to do in the privacy of your own home.
And I want to um, jump back a little bit to the disassociation a little bit um, mm-hmm. and just chat about that for a minute because I'm thinking about, you know, this um, you know, compound being used to support people that have literally tried everything else. You know, these are these are folks that have really tried, you know, different combinations of pharmaceutical drugs that have never helped. You know, maybe they tried other plant medicines and realized that, you know, they have run out of options in many ways and feel that, you know, if you're suffering from suicidal ideation on the daily, I mean, I would think that you'd be willing to try anything if you can, you know, reset your brain and, and, and do this. But I'm glad to hear about you know, how this would can become more affordable to people, because I think this idea of maybe disassociation to allow someone to step away from maybe their PTSD or their, their darkest memories or those ideations is great, but I just kept hearing that it's just so expensive and that, that it's not going to be accessible. So um, hearing this, I did hear that, that there's a lossage as well, like a, um, that that's come out and like some other, you know, ways of, 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 doing this, but it's not for everyone. And I feel like a lot of times, you know, um, when speaking about, you know, these new kind of exciting treatments, there's been a lot of talk about, oh, well, and I think we, we started with cannabis, right? Where I was like, just rub some CBD on it. You know, like I was like, everybody was like, <laughs> you know, the cannabis is the cure-all. And I just want to, you know, make sure that, and that's why it was so important we wanted to have you on because yes, this is a breakthrough treatment, but there is a lot that we need to ensure that, you know, that, that it's very read of, like you can get it on the street pretty easily. So yeah. talking about it and discussing what it does for you is important, but really talking about the side effects and why it's so important to, you know, have a doctor there with you, I think is equally as important, especially with this disassociation piece. Yeah. Uh, you bring up two, a couple uh, a couple really important points. One is the suicidal, suicidal ideation. So I didn't really mention that, um, but Spravato specifically also, in addition, it's indicated for two things. It's indicated for treatment-resistant depression, but it's also indicated for suicidal ideation. Um, and I think the reason why it's such a good option for that is because it does work so quickly. In other words, if you have someone who's severe, so severely depressed that they're, you know, have to have suicidal ideation, you want something that works really, really fast. So, so this is something, and that's also something where ketamine potentially plays a role because the one of the, the downsides, well. It's wonderful that the it's Spravato is FDA approved, and it's great that most insurances will cover it. I mentioned briefly that there's some paperwork involved. It's not like the insurance company oh says sure we'll give it to you. No no no. There's a lot of prior approval, and if you have ever had a prescription drug that wasn't generic, you you've probably been through this process of the doctor calls in a medication, and then the pharmacy says well it has to be approved by your insurance company. And Spravato right. specifically. While we're, you know, we have not had problems getting approved, it's not an overnight thing, you know. And for someone who's been suffering for treatment of resistance to depression for years, you know, a couple of days to a week doesn't make a huge deal. But for someone who's thinking about killing themselves, it can be life or death. So one, of the, so another advantage for for ketamine is that we could get you started on the ketamine right away, and then if you wanted to switch to Spravato, that would be something that you could do. The other point that you make is, is really. I think really important when it comes to all these alternative type of therapies, because we tend to lump them together and they're all very, very, very different. So, I mean, one of the, I mean, cannabis has been around for a very long time. Recreational cannabis has been around for a very long time and there's a good strong track record for cannabis safety. So whereas, you know, I would prefer that patients, you know, come to see me and do cannabis if they want to treat a medical condition. Again, I'm not talking about recreational use, I'm talking about if they have a medical condition, 
that the best thing to do would be, you know, to see a clinician that, you know, knows about this, get certified, use the medically grade certified cannabis to treat it like a medical condition. That being said, you know, recreational cannabis is ubiquitous now. It's more accepted, you know, and in some of the markets that are very developed, you know, like California, Colorado, you know, the differences between the medicinal grade cannabis and the recreational cannabis are not that much different. So one of those try it on your own, you know, for cannabis, while it's not my preference, I think the harm factor is low enough that it's reasonable. And there are some other things that, you know, you've talked to your listeners about with psychedelics and stuff like that, that there's some safety, you know, there's, 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 there's enough buffer of safety that people could sort of dabble on their own before seeking sort of expert advice. With ketamine, it's, I mean, this is a drug. It's a medication. It's not something, you know, again, I, I do think it's a safe alternative, but it's not something that I would recommend, you know, get a lozenge, you know, from on the street and try it on your own, you know, because, you know, I think, you know, the, the more mind altering the substance, whether it's addictive or not, I think the more we have to be careful. Um, you know, and even though these, you know, natural substances, that have been mind altering have been used medicinally for a long time, you know, you have to be careful. Even in, you know, I don't have, I don't have a, I'm not an expert on, let's say ayahuasca, for example, but you know, even cultures that use that, it's not like, you know, the culture is just taking it on their own. There's usually a shaman or something like that. That's, you know, supervising them at least maybe they didn't go to medical school, but you know, hopefully there's a safety. And so I think it's long, you know, you have to really not lump everything together, but really be knowledgeable about the pros and the cons specifically about the safety before people start doing this on their own without taking those precautions. So there's, well, you know, I, I, I enjoy doing both, you know, uh, recommending both medical cannabis and spravato and ketamine. Um, and I think there's a lot of synergy between the two, you know, they're very, very different, you know, from a safety standpoint and a monitoring standpoint, things like that. Are there side effects to to using Spravato or ketamine, like short term or long term? Yeah, so again, it's again the, the data on Spravato is very limited to the past couple of years. The data on ketamine, especially nasal ketamine, is also very limited. But it doesn't seem like there's any long term side effects. So there's 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 definitely it, most of the most of the side effects are in that short term period during the use with the idea that it's still in your body for several hours later. So there might be, so one of the side effects, if you will, is there may be, you know, some unconscious mind altering things that you're not aware of, just like any anesthetic agent, which is why we tell people not to drive, you know, until the next day, not, you know, what you don't want to do is being, you know, sending your email to your boss, you know, four hours after your ketamine treatment, because there may still be some residual effects and you may be disinhibited and, you know, send something that you don't want to do. So, you know, again, I don't want to know if you want to call that a side effect or not, but, you know, there are some of the, but, you know, you have to be cautious about it. But the acute side effects are really, the predominant ones are really the disassociation, which, again, I wouldn't call it a side effect because that's how the medicine works and it's not necessarily unpleasant, but people are going to sort of feel that disconnection, space and time and floaty feeling, whatever. The nausea and the raise in blood pressure are the main ones. Um, sedation is another one, again. I don't necessarily see that as a side effect because people, at least the way we do it, is we observe them for two hours and the sedation generally wears off by then. And most people, you know, after the first treatments, people could be still a little bit sleepy, but usually once they get used to it, you know, they're sort of up and ready to go by the two hour time mark for the most part. So I just want to say when I've had anesthesia in the past, afterwards, I feel depressed. So how is this different? Oh, that's 
So I'll try to be, make it as simple as possible. So there's many kinds of anesthesia, and, and different anesthesias do different things. Some anesthetic agents are just pain control agents. Some anesthetic agents are just mind-altering uh, mind medications so that you're – so, for example, um, colonoscopy. I'll use that because people sort of know what colonoscopies are. Colonoscopies today, uh, the primary anesthetic agent is propofol. So propofol is famous. That's the Michael Jackson medicine. So that basically Michael Jackson and his anesthesiologist that he hired was not using this appropriately in a medical setting, but it essentially makes you very sleepy. But also it's interesting that you're responsive. So during a colonoscopy, for example, you know, if the, if the, if the provider wants you to turn or move over or ask you if there's any pain, you can answer that. Now, you're not going to remember any of that. But you, you, it's a light sedative, essentially. But you don't remember anything. It's got an amnestic property, meaning you don't remember what was going on, similar to, you know, you know roofies and, and, and stuff like that. So, so there's those medications. And then there are paralytic agents uh, that make your body not move, which, you know, why would you want to do that? Well, if you're operating on a patient, you know, and you're doing surgery and you're doing it with a fine knife, you really don't want the patient to move. So, so, and then there's different forms of that. There's pills, there's IVs, there's inhalation. So again, the earliest anesthetic agents like ether and stuff like that were all inhalants. And typically the anesthesiologist will use a combination of medications through a variety of methods to achieve the desired outcomes. So while ketamine is an anesthetic agent, you know, it's it, it, it's not like it's this you're going to have the same experience like if you had surgery. Okay. So and again, it's not a common agent used in um, in adults. It's mostly for kids. And I think part it, again, I'm not I want to be very clear. I'm not an anesthesiologist. so I can't give you sort of the differences between ketamine and other anesthetics. But I'm pretty sure that it might not be the best anesthetic um, compared to some of the other ones. But I think because of its safety factor, it tends to be preferred in children. Uh, because it's safe in kids, whereas with adults, we usually, you know, we, you know, we, we want to, we, not that we don't want to be safe with adults, but there's a little bit more tolerance of safety when it comes to adults and children. So just because you had a bad outcome from anesthesia doesn't mean that you're going to have a bad outcome with, with ketamine. Um, Thank you for that. Yeah. And so how would someone get to, you know, come take these treatments, Dr. Mintz? I mean, do they, they have a, is it from a psych? Psychiatrist that give ha, already has given them a right. diagnosis so, and they see you. Excellent. So good question. So they can go to my website. It's drmince.com. There's a link for spirato. There's a link for ketamine for treatment resistant depression. I ask that they come with a referral from their psychiatrist or whoever is treating you know their depression. You know I want to make it very clear while I'm an internal medicine physician and I monitor this very safely in my office and I think it's a good treatment. I am not a psychiatrist. So I you know if I don't want to be playing around with their other psychiatric drugs or, you know, if they're, if ketamine is working and then something happens and that, that's not my area of expertise. So I do want to make sure that I'm doing this in consultation with someone who's managing, you know, their current psychiatric medicine. So, you know, and, and then, so, so patients call us or they book an appointment online, we get the referral or some documentation that they have a psychiatrist and then they come in. Often they'll ask questions about payment and stuff like that. We answer those questions then they come in for a consultation. And basically during that consultation, there's basically sort of three parts to that, or maybe not three. There's a couple parts to it. One, and most importantly, is I make sure that they're an, you know, a safe candidate for the medication. One, that they're a good candidate, that they have treatment-resistant depression. 
uh, but also more from a safety standpoint that there aren't risk factors that we, you know, have to look out for because, again, there are some issues specifically with blood pressure. So we look at that. Uh, the second thing is to go over a lot of the logistics of um, the treatment because it's, again, it's quite involved. It's a week, you know, twice weekly treatment for four weeks, then weekly thereafter. And, you know, we go over the, all the, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about now, sort of the, what's going to happen and what it's like and make sure you come on an empty stomach and all that kind of sort of logistical stuff. And then the third part actually is paperwork stuff, mostly for the Spravato patients and, and getting the insurance to cover it. it. The Spravato is approved under what's called a REMS program. So, I won't go into detail about that, but I think most people now with the COVID vaccine understand that, you know, the COVID vaccines are still, other than Pfizer, under emergency use authorization. So they're approved by the FDA, but under certain circumstances. So Spravato is sort of like that. It's not for emergency use, but it's a different category than any other medication. So because of that, uh, there's a lot of sort of T's to cross and I's to dot, both from a delivery standpoint. You know, there's storage things. So, for example... I have to store it in my office, in a lock safe, in a lock closet. There's certain DEA ways to dispose of it. There's lots of rules and regulations the patient doesn't have to worry about. But uh, but also there's paperwork involved, informed consent. And, you know, basically the patient, the, the, the pharmaceutical company has been very helpful in trying to assist the physicians in getting coverage for the medication. But that involves a lot of paperwork. And so we just have to sign to get patients permission. So it's basically making sure they're a good and safe candidate, explaining the process of procedure, a little bit of paperwork to help get the drug covered. And then once we get the drug approved and we order it and it comes into our office, then we schedule that initial session, which, again, is a two hour treatment. And we you know, show them how to do it and they do it in the office and we go over everything. And it's in a nice, safe, comfortable, quiet place. And you know, hopefully their experience is good. And again, in most cases, you know, we haven't had any bad experiences of the few patients that haven't worked. Just nothing happened. Uh, but for most patients, you know, the experience was good. They noticed results relatively quickly. And it's been, you know, and I've had now I've had, now my first patient is still with me. And I think he's he's if he hasn't hit it, he will soon hit his two year anniversary. So uh, and it, uh, so 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 it, yeah, and, and this was a, a patient. Obviously, I can't divulge a lot of information for privacy, but, you know, had tried everything you know, basically wasn't able to function and now is back working at his job and leading a normal life. So, so he's That's a very amazing doctor. Mintz. Wow. Really is. Cool. Now so I have to ask you a question about, okay, so what if the patient wants their psychiatrist to sit in the room while they're having the treatments? Have you had anybody ask that? Or even beyond that, maybe somebody that considers themselves a trip sitter or someone that holds space in kind of the plant medicine space, would you be open to having like how it is um, like a doula coming into a medical physician to sit with someone in that capacity? Would you be open to it? Absolutely. So we, we've had one or two patients where, you know, again, it's for depression, but anxiety and depression often come together and had one patient who really wanted to try it, but quite frankly, was very anxious about having an adverse reaction. And so I, I'm pretty sure it was from her mom. She was a young woman and her mom like stayed with her for the entire time. I don't have a problem with that. You want to sit in you know, my room with the patient that that's okay. You know, you want to, that's, we have no, I have no problem with that. Um, it's that being said though, unlike, you know, I'll use psilocybin as an example, you know, unlike psilocybin or I mentioned ayahuasca, I don't think it's necessary. So that's something that I'm open to that we certainly would allow. We've allowed it before, but most patients, they sort of are okay with it. 
and they don't require that. But if patients feel comfortable or want someone, we have no problem with that. Whereas if I were to start doing psilocybin, which hopefully, you know, we'll see what the laws allow, you know, that's definitely, that's, a, that's sort of next on my list. Uh, uh, once something gets approved and the laws change. Well, we'll have you back when yeah, that happens. To hear that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I'll be honest. I love that. It, until it's approved or legal, I haven't spent a ton of time researching it because, I, you know, the, the laws are so crazy, you know. Um, but, but to me, they all fit into that same sort of category of, you know, the a different approach to sort of mental health and pain and things like that. And so, you know, again, this was not my plan. My plan <laughs> was, you know, I had a great 20 year academic career. It was wonderful. It was time for a switch for a lot of reasons, including commute. I planned on setting a little small private practice in internal medicine, doing physical exams and treating cholesterol and diabetes. This was not in the plan, but in both cases sort of stumbled into it and it just seen some amazing results. And, you know, that's what you want to do as a doctor. You want to make patients better. So it's, it's hard to turn away from that. And so when I hear things about some of the other things that you talk about on your podcast, like psilocybin, that gets me very excited because maybe this is another tool in my toolbox. And so, um, you know, we'll we're so grateful for you, Dr. Mintz, yeah. because of your, your open mindedness and you're, you're all you're so brilliant and to be able to, you know, be able to open your mind to say, yeah, we, there is a space. Like, it's just so great to hear you say that you'd be open to even having like a trip sitter or someone else holding space, because I think that they're, they're, in this kind of new age of maybe, you know, psychedelic assisted therapies that there will have to be, I think, support systems around mm -hmm. the patients um, that need some additional integration and maybe need some additional support to just talk about really what happened through some of these experiences. So working in tandem with a medical professional, I feel is going to give people the best experience because right. they're getting everything in a safe way, but then they're also getting the community and the connection that they need as well. So just so very grateful for having you on today. Um, we're going to definitely have you back on uh, to talk about more, um, but today was specifically to talk about the ketamine assisted therapy treatments that you're offering. And just to give our, our listeners a reminder of your website, please, so that they know where to find you. Yeah, so very easy. So it's www.drmintz.com, D-R-M-I-N-T-Z.com. Um, or you can just Google Dr. Matthew Mintz and you'll hopefully, hopefully my website's good enough that that'll pop up really <laughs> quickly uh, before advertisements. But uh, that's how you find me. Thank you so much, Dr. Mintz. My pleasure. Great talking to you guys. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to another episode of The Vine, a Plant Media Project podcast. Thank you again to Dr. Mintz for joining us on today's show. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to never miss an episode. For cannabis and psychedelic news, visit us online at plantmediaproject.com. Together, we can end the stigma around plant medicine. Mm -hmm.